I love this song. And I love that we sang it here now in this place because this is the text that we're studying. It's what Paul reminds the church at Colossae of. And today's message is a message of hope. It's not, hopefully not just some sort of gentle reminder, which sometimes we do, but I hope today will result in some sort of boisterous celebration of our complete and utter rescue, our ransom by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I don't anticipate that the response to this will be great, but have you ever read the Puritans, <laughs> the old preachers from the past? People like John Owen, who wrote The Glory of Christ, or Roger Williams, the founder of the First Baptist Church in America. Matthew Henry, many of you are familiar with him because of his commentary that remains, or Jonathan Edwards, some of you may have heard of his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Any familiarity there at all? Kind of, kind of sort of. Those guys had something that I think that we're largely missing today. They had an appropriate and reiterated, matter of fact, often reiterated, acknowledgement of our need for grace. They did not belittle the human condition apart from Christ. They used words, like the songs that we sing, some of our older hymns, uh, call us a wretch, call us a worm. And they talk about our need, and then they talk about God's grace, and how God's grace applies to us. I, I think that we need this today. I think that we seem to have some idea or some sense in our culture, certainly North American culture today, that we somehow deserve God's attention that we deserve God's care. Now, granted, we're not perfect, but we're not that bad. Uh, there must be something that God sees favorable in us. And, and in our text today that we read earlier, we have a very clear contrast between verse 21 and verse 22. <laughs> a very, very clear contrast. And just to put this in context, you will remember, of course, Paul's writing this letter to the Christians at the town of Colossae, those who had gathered in the church. And we started by saying we need to get our lives on target like Paul had his life on target. Paul knew where he was going. He knew what he was supposed to do. Paul was an apostle. He was sent by the will of Christ Jesus. And so he was right where he was supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing. Now, at the moment, he's in prison. Uh, he gets released. He goes back to prison. But he is right where he's supposed to be, doing right what he's supposed to be doing. He's with Timothy, so he's not alone. He's writing to the church because... The church is God's plan for bringing glory to himself and to the world. We get that understanding. And then he reports the good things he had heard about them. He prays that, and he prays for them. He prays that they'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We've studied that as we've learned how to pray for each other. He prays that they'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. He prays that as a result of that, they'll be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened according to God's might, working in them and through them in order that they could remain steadfast and endure. So endure and also endure every circumstance and every situation, but also be patient. Be patient with every person, even those with whom it's difficult to be patient. And then he prays, of course, that they will be filled with joy and thanksgiving. And then he goes into this hymn, I guess, a poem, a doxology about Jesus Christ. You remember we pick up in verse 15, and it's all about Jesus. All of this has been, but particularly now, he describes the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. 
transferred us to the kingdom of His Son. He's redeemed us. He has forgiven us. Jesus has. And who is this Jesus? He's the Lord of creation. Who is this Jesus? He's the Lord of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the only means of making peace with God. And that only by the blood of the cross. Harsh words. Harsh words. I got to teach a Sunday school class this morning. It was great, by the way. I had a blast. We're talking about God's command to worship and how God established for them to worship. And God commanded that sacrifices be made. Oftentimes it was an animal, a lamb, a goat, a bird, a bull. And the requirement was that the sacrifice be killed. That's what it would literally be placed upon the altar, killed, and the blood shed. And the picture that was portrayed, and these guys get this, by the way, Sunday school class, great job this morning, was that there was a substitution that was taking place. Sin requires death. Sin requires breaking the law, requires, requires sentencing and punishment. And so there's this picture of a substitution that took place through the years that the animal would suffer for my sin. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying to these people, remember, remember that your sin has been paid for, not by the blood of an animal, but by the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. A man, his body, his blood shed on the cross. But wait, he's talking to the church. Surely they know this. I mean, they're saved. Surely they understand this. He's talking to saints. They knew the gospel. He said the gospel had already born fruit in them and were continuing to bear fruit. And after all this, Paul sees fit to remind them of the glaring contrast between the amazing grace of God today that they've experienced and what they were before. The Colossians are being exhorted to think of what they were at one time, in times past. Remember who you were. And that's a great place if you're taking notes for you to start we need to, to get things in perspective, to be gospel-centric, we need to remember our past. We need to remember who we were before we got saved. Look at verse 21. Just verse 21. If you have your copy of your Bible open, and I recommend that you do, by the way. It's always a, a good thing to do. We will certainly put the words on the screen. And the words are in the bulletin as well. You can just, in the worship guide, you can just see that little paragraph. But look at verse 21. He says, and you, he's speaking subjectively, this is second person, plural, you, church, and you, who once, or at one time, there was a time before, you were alienated. Now, you need to identify that. Draw a circle around it, or uh, highlight it, or underline it. You were alienated and hostile. Go ahead and identify that. Alienated and hostile in mind, doing Evil deeds, and I would circle that as your third point. Evil deeds. And so here's how he's describing these people he just called saints. Here's how he's describing or reminding them of what was true about their past. He's already talked about their reconciliation and the blood of the cross through Christ Jesus. And what he's doing here is making sure they do not forget or do not miss the contrast between their depravity, their lostness, and God's holiness. They get, get this, hey guys, they get what a big deal grace is. And we just get used to it. <laughs> and we need the reminder of what a big deal grace is. When we really understand the chasm, the gap between 
our perfect and beautiful and holy and righteous God and my sinfulness and my alienation, my wretchedness. When we understand this, it can revive our Christianity. Understanding and thinking on these truths help change our daily attitudes. A lot of times we just deal with the malaise and the frustration of life on this earth without being mindful of God's one-time grace to us and His continuous grace for us. And when we get it, we seem to experience attitudes of gratitude and joy and worship rather than living life without those. Reflecting on our state before Christ should create in us a sense of awe, a sense of amazement at just what He accomplished for us on the cross with the shedding of His blood, with the giving up of His life. We had a brief conversation this week about God's reckless love. What does that mean, God's reckless love? Is God reckless? God's not reckless. God's never capricious. And He's never reckless. So why do we call God's love God's reckless love? Because reckless is without consideration for the consequences. And God's love pursues us regardless of the cost to Himself. His love is all in. His love is complete. His love is full in us. It is all out. It is not conditional. And it is poured out upon us. When I grasp this truth, it leaves me breathless. <laughs> when I grasp this truth, when I take time and the Holy Spirit makes this real to me, it, it, it humbles me and it exalts and excites me. We can say that God's grace is amazing grace. It's an old song. You know it? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved what? This is a participatory service today. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. When our days are gospel-centered, when we remember the extent of grace, our time in God's Word gets exciting and revived. Our time in prayer is transformed from some sort of duty or checklist to a time of intimate fellowship and joy. Our normal complaining about the circumstances and situation of life is transformed into an attitude of thankfulness and gratefulness. Our natural critique of others and judgmentalism is replaced with grace because we know, having been forgiven of so much it is easier to forgive others the gospel gives us hope as we remember our past now let's just go over those words really quick you are alienated alienated is a great word uh, it means simply that you are cut off that you were cast out it means that you were shut out from fellowship and intimacy you were an outsider what Isaiah describes in Isaiah 59 too is your sins have separated between you and your God. What Isaiah further says in the later prophecy, we have turned away each one to his own way, just like lambs, just like sheep. Uh, the theological term for this is depraved or depravity. We are totally depraved. There is no good in us. Now, Romans chapter 5 makes it clear that we inherited this condition. That is, by one man sin entered into the world, so death has passed on to all men, for all have sinned. And so, 
I want you to understand that this is an inherited condition that is true of everyone, but it is also a volitional condition. You and I sin. Romans chapter 3 makes that abundantly clear that there is none righteous. No, not one. And he goes on to talk about how the, that lack of righteousness is expressed, and it's expressed in our communication, and it's expressed in our willful choices and disobedience. And it's one of the reasons that God gave us the law, to reveal to us our inability to keep it, to show us what right is and holiness and purity is, and then to show us the many times that we failed it. And it takes away all of our excuses. We can't bring anything to the table. There's nothing in us worth bringing to the table. Does that make sense? Are you with me? You are alienated. Cast out. Just like Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. You are kicked out of the presence of God. Is that okay? Is that a good place to be? No, not okay. Not a good place to be. You understand because of our sin, we have an issue with God. God is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. In the book of Habakkuk, H-A-B, however you spell it, I abbreviate it, H-A-B, Habakkuk, one of the smaller prophets in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy coming that Babylon is going to be used to judge Israel. And Habakkuk's having a real problem with that. He's like, God, they're worse than we are. I mean, we're bad. We're in rebellion against you. We're not following your rules. But they're worse than we are. They worship idols. They profane your name. How can you use them to exact your justice and punishment upon us to bring us to repentance? There's no way that you can approve or look favorably upon sin and upon sinners. And here's how he says it. He says, uh, You who are pure of pure eyes than to see evil... And cannot look at wrong. And what he's telling God is that you are too holy to look favorable upon evil. I want you to understand that when we talk about grace, we're not talking about toleration. You guys ever had tolerance training? It's a big deal in our culture. It's a big deal in our society. And what our contemporary understanding of tolerance is, is that you can't call anybody wrong in the choices they make or the beliefs that they espouse. Everyone, this is not biblical, all right? This is societal, and it says that everyone's opinion is of equal value. There's no absolute right. There's no absolute wrong, and so you have to be tolerant and accepting and even approving of what anyone chooses. Here's what you need to know about God. God does not tolerate sin. God does not tolerate any transgression of his law. Here's what he says, reiterated, in the New Testament, the epistle of James, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely, what? Die. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You can eat any tree in the garden except for this one, the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Paul iterates that in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. And so we have spiritual death. Alienation. Complete separation from God, totally depraved. And you may think, wait a minute, I know some good people who aren't saved. I know some good people who don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ or profess to follow Him. And i got to tell you, I, I, I know some very nice people who I enjoy spending time with and could, could easily spend a good bit more time with who do not profess Christ. We need to understand what it is that we're talking about. 
What depravity is, is the absence of holiness. It's not the highest intensity of sin. It doesn't mean you're as bad behaviorally as you could possibly be. A totally depraved man is not as bad as he can be, but one that has no holiness in him. That is, no supreme love of God, no presence of God. He is separated from his creation. And as a result of this separation, he is hostile to God. And that's what the text says. Paul says here, you are alienated, cast out, cut off completely from God. And you're hostile to God. You're at enmity with God. Scripture talks about that we are enemies of God. You remember Romans chapter 5? You will remember Paul writing to the church at Rome, a place he had not been, and he's talking about the love of God. And he says, but now has God commended or demonstrated, manifested His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's verse 8. If you go back up to verse 7, verse 6 and 7, you'll see that He calls us ungodly and enemies. Now, I know a lot of people who would not classify themselves as enemies of God. Most of the people I speak with don't profess hostility to God. As a matter of fact, most of them would like to profess apathy to God. He's just simply irrelevant to their daily lives. They can be good people without Him. They can lead fairly content lives apart from Him. And because their eyes are blinded, and even their so-called good deeds are motivated by a sense of self-aggrandizement or self-pleasing, where you say, look, I'm being good. I'm supposed to be good. Look how good I'm being. An, an unspoken, unrealized desire to displace the role of God, the person of God, with their own self. And it is the love of self that is hostility toward God. How many people have you ever carried on a conversation that just said, I don't need God? We got a chance a few months ago to walk around the West End community to meet people out on the street to talk to some folks. And it was a good time. Some of you were there. We, had a, we got to introduce that the church is coming and who we are as a church. And we just got to talk to people. We met a young man there. And I, I'm not going to go into any specific details, but I w- do want to summarize the conversation. At the close of just kind of catching up, who are you, how long have you been here? He had his dog with him. By the way, everybody has a dog. I don't know what happened. But, but uh, it was great. People were out walking their dogs all over the place. Uh, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It just is a thing. Um, but he was out walking his dog. Uh, and, and, and we said, how can we pray for you? We're going to be praying. We're going to take time and we're going to go back. And we're going to pray. How can we pray for you? And the guy just, he, he, he just, it, it, he didn't know what to say. He said, well, relationship's good. Live here on the West End. Got a nice place. Got in it okay. Work's going fine. Sunshine is a beautiful day. I'm good. You don't have to pray for me. I'm good. Now, how can you get to that point? Now, I will tell you, much of the people that you run into, that's where they exist. That's where they live. And it may be that things aren't good, that they're struggling, but they'll get through because, you know, a little pain makes us stronger. We'll just grit our teeth and bear it. And what they don't realize is that they're not good. That they are alienated from God. And they can't because their eyes are blinded. They're in the kingdom of darkness. Uh, they're being lied to. And that's why it's important that we share the truth. That's why it's important that we remember the truth for ourselves. That's why it's important that 
Paul rehearses this and that we rehearse that there was a time that we were alienated from God, exalting self over God. That's hostility toward God. And as a result, the lives that we led did not honor God, did not glorify God. He calls it here evil deeds. But then we come to the best part. This is the exciting part. Hold on. All that was introduction. <laughs> Here's the best part. But, but I do want to let you know that if you're here and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's a severe penalty for that. If you're here and you've never been convicted of sin or your need for the Savior and God's just okay or we might, you know, there's not been this awareness of your need for the Savior, I pray that God through His Holy Spirit will make you aware of the consequences of being alienated from God, being hostile to God, and exalting self over God. And it is death, and it is eternal death. It is being spiritually dead here, living alienated from God. But it is an eternity spent in hell, the lake of fire. A place where the Bible describes as punishment, eternal punishment, that fits the sin. And this alienation for those who die apart from Christ, whose physical bodies die apart from Christ, does not end. It's ongoing. But here's the good news. God made a way for us to no longer be alienated. God made a way for us to be welcomed back in. You understand, the first part is being kicked out, cut off, shut off. Now, the gate is open. Now there is a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said. Now there is a means by which we can no longer be cut off or alienated, but we can be part of the family of God. The word that he uses here is the word reconcile, to reconnect, to connect, to infuse life. And he says in the very next verse, verse 22, he says that we are reconciled. I, I love the phrase, and there are different translations, I guess, that, that you can use when you read this text. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He has now. Uh, one of the texts that I have used, one of the translations, NIV says, but now. I like that. But now. Because that's really what this is. Ora day. But now. Something has happened that has changed. Now. What has happened? Now. He has reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Alright, Jesus made a way. He has now reconciled us, you, he's speaking to them, in his body of flesh by his death. So we need to remember our past, but there's, there's more than that. We need to reflect, as believers, if you're saved, you need to reflect on the all-sufficient saving work of Christ. Here's the problem when we forget the gospel. When we forget the gospel, we begin to think again that it's all about us. When we forget who we were and we forget grace, who God is and what He's done for us, we begin to think it's all about us. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about what He accomplished. It's about His grace showed up to us and poured out upon us. There is no provision in Scripture and no provision in life. God makes no provision for you to somehow catch the eye of God or to make yourself attractive or desirable to God. There are no provisions for your actions or your deeds to make you somehow acceptable to God. You are cut off and dead and you could not get to God. So what did He do? He came to you. He came to you. 
But now, an emphasized contrast. You're something different because of what he did. What he's already described. He brought you out of darkness into his kingdom of light. He freed you from your slavery to sin. He took you from the pit, like the psalmist says, and set your feet upon a rock. He took you out of the filth of unclean works. He washed you clean and made you whiter than snow. Every sin recorded. He took that ledger of your sins, all worthy of death. And He gave them to Christ on the cross. And He canceled it. That debt paid in full. That cost written in blood. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I couldn't see before, but now I understand the extent of God's grace. And it's what He did, not what I did. It's what He did. I cannot contribute to His saving work. He made a way for me to be right with God. And so we need to be people of the cross. We need to be people who are resting in the sufficiency of the cross. I want to share with you a clip. There's a preacher named Alistair Begg. You may have heard of him. I don't know if you have or not. He's a pastor of Parkside Church in uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, one of those Ohio cities. And uh, he's a great preacher. He's a great communicator. And here's a small clip in which he reminds us that Christ alone saves. That he, Christ, has reconciled us by the blood of the cross. Let's see if we can make this work. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, did you, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. Think I'll get the supervisor angel. So we just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" 
And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense. That we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. Saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. What's so amazing about grace? What's so astonishing about grace? The wonder of it all. There are many things that I find wonderful. There's the wonder of sunset at evening. The wonder of sunrise, I see. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. The wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. The wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. Just to think that God loves me. Do you understand that when we preach the cross to ourselves, that we remember from whence He has saved us, and we've had the experience of, but now He has reconciled you. He has made you right with God. And that I couldn't do it, that I couldn't get to Him, He came to me. And that when we hold on to and refresh and rehearse and sing the songs that remind us and quote the scriptures that remind us and pray the prayers that take us into the, the, the almost tangible presence of a holy God. There's this sense of awe and wonder and gratitude that fills and informs our life. And we become markedly different than the people around us. There's a purpose clause in this sentence. You have been reconciled in order that. In order that He may present you holy. Holy means sanctified, set apart to Him. Blameless, blameless, without spot or wrinkle. Beyond accusation, before Him, no one can accuse you. That is Satan's job. He accuses. And before Him, no one can accuse us because the cost has been paid. Grace has been bestowed, and you've become something that you've never been before, a child of the King 
of kings. How can you not sing? Every once in a while, I wish this was a shouting church. Because these truths make me want to shout. At the very least, they should fill us with awe and humble, humble gratitude. It is only against the pitch blackness of the night that we see the glory of the stars. It is only against the pitch blackness of man's radical depravity that we can begin to see the glories of the gospel on display through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace never ignores the awful truth of our need for a Savior, our sinfulness. In fact, it emphasizes it. The worse we realize we are and the greater we understand our need, the greater we rejoice and celebrate in God's grace. Now it's time for the third point, but let's just do that next week, shall we? Isn't this a good place to kind of breathe? Let me give you just a taste. Because he goes on to say if. That's a conditional if. It is also an affirming conjunction. We'll get to that a little bit grammatically next week. But verse 23 he says, If indeed you continue the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you had heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, am a minister. Now listen, he's saying that we are to continue in the faith. The, the church at Colossae had been troubled by false teachers. They had people coming in saying Christ was some sort of eminence and there's this whole other thing that you need a special secret knowledge. Would they be able to resist them? He says you have false teaching on every channel. Oh, we have false teaching on every channel, every podcast, every book, and every video. And here's the question for us. Will we remember the gospel? Will we hold to the great gospel truths in the scripture regarding the all-sufficient work of Jesus on the cross? This if is not simply conditional. Paul is not so much expressing doubt as he is stating an expectation that they will remain, that they will not be moved. But it does bid them to keep a watch over themselves, stable and steadfast. And so here's the preview for next week's sermon. It's the third point on your outline. From this point forward, we need to make sure that we remain firm on the gospel. That we are not deceived and that we are not led astray. That we hold to the truth of the gospel, that we remember it, that we rehearse it. That we say it, that we sing it, that we pray it, that we talk about it. That we understand, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And that creates in us the attitude of worship. That creates in us... The attitude of love for the one who saved us. Have you ever had your life saved by somebody else? Are there any Clemson fans here? I thought there might be one or two. You guys ever heard of a guy named Clark Bynum? Used to play basketball about 18 years ago for Clemson University. Four-year starter out of Sumter, South Carolina. Okay, anyway, let me tell you about Clark. He's dead now. He died at 45 to cancer. Married, left two kids behind. He's from Sumter. But um, in, in the year 2000, uh, I think it was 2000. I'm not sure exactly. I can look that up. But he was on a mission trip uh, with a friend of his. They had left Sumter, and they were going to Uganda to preach the gospel on a mission trip. Well, they had to go through Heathrow. When they got to Heathrow, the weather was bad. They had to be rerouted. So he got on a different flight, British Airways, and they were going by way of Nairobi, and then from Nairobi down to Uganda. 
Well, uh, they got on the flight because they changed his and his friend's flight. They moved him to first class, second row, first class. And he fell asleep, which is a good thing to do when you have a long flight overseas. As they were flying along, though, all of a sudden, the plane started to plummet to the ground. Woke him up, scared him. He looked at his buddy sitting next to him. He said, we're going to die. And the guy said, yeah, we are. I mean, they're going down. They're not over the ocean now. They're over land. And the plane has not just dropped. It is nose down. Well, all of a sudden, it levels out and starts to rise. A guy comes running up the aisle. He finds out later it was the pilot who was on a break. The co-pilot was flying. It starts to rise again, and then all of a sudden, they hear a noise, uh, like a fight taking place in the cockpit. And the plane starts to plummet again. Clark looks at his buddy, and he says, I'm going in. (laughs) And this is before a lot of the procedures are put into place. Matter of fact, this was the impetus for British Airways changing how they managed cockpits during flight. He went in. What I didn't tell you was that he's six foot seven, about 280 pounds. And he sees this wary guy with his, he's turned off the autopilot, he finds out later he's wrapped his arms around the uh, uh, co-pilot and he's fighting him and he's pushing down on the controls. And Clark just basically sees what's going on and grabs the guy (laughs) and flings him out of the cockpit Uh, and follows after and jumps on top of him and his friend and about three other people, and they hold the guy down until they can tie him. Meanwhile, the pilots are able to get back in there, get the plane facing up. Um, the pilots were able to ride the plane. Now, here's what they told Bynum, Clark. He, in two or three more seconds, the plane would have turned over and then crashed within ten seconds had they not been able to get to the controls. There was obviously an investigation. This guy was mentally deranged. Not a lot of information about him. You can look all this up. It's, all, it, it's old story, but it's an accurate story, and it's, a, it's still available for you to see. But the, as I was reading this, there was one of the things that really struck me. What do you think those, pilot, those passengers on that plane thought of Clark? Think they were grateful? They thought they were going to die. Had he not intervened, their death was certain. Three seconds, ten seconds to impact. Had he not stepped up? There, this is an interesting reading when you have time. There were a lot of news reports. Anderson Independent did another uh, story on this uh, just a few years ago, even though this took place some time ago. But they interviewed other passengers on the plane, and they all expressed their gratitude, their thankfulness, their gratefulness to Mr. Bynum. Now let me, let me just point something out. It, it's something when somebody else saves your life. It's something. But if you're here and you're in Christ Jesus, you've had a greater rescue. Not only has your life been saved, you've been given eternal life. You've been rescued from hell and from the wrath of God against sin. And what we so often forget because we talk about grace, which means free, is we think we're worthless. 
we equate free with not having worth or value. If it comes free, it must not be that big a deal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer dealt with this so well in his day and his generation. And we need to understand that just because it's free does not mean that it doesn't have value, doesn't have great worth, that it did not cost someone else. What does Paul say in this text? He reconciled us through his physical body, literally in the Greek, through his body of flesh. Go back up to verse 19 and 20. How did he save us? How did he move us and transfer us to, the, to his kingdom? By the blood of the cross. There is a cost, a great cost involved in your salvation. And he paid it. And he offers his provision for the penalty of your sin. Free. Meaning you can't earn it, but it's not free. It costs you everything. It costs you everything. It means that you give your life to him, that you acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You acknowledge that Christ is that Savior, that He is the perfect Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world, your sin. And it requires you bowing the knee and bowing your heart and yielding your life to Him. And then you too will experience God's amazing grace. Father, thank You. Thank You. That at one time, even though we were alienated from you, cast out, cut off, even though we were hostile to you, at enmity, working against you in our minds, even though our lives were filled with evil deeds, our minds with evil thoughts, our hands with evil activities, our feet taking us to evil places, Jesus came, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, And He came to pay the penalty for my sin and for the sin of every person in this room. For the sin of every person who hears this message. Every every person. His blood is sufficient for the salvation of all who come to Him in repentance and faith. And so, Father, first of all, I pray that You'll create in us a sense both of unworthiness and awe and gratitude that sustains us as we go through our days. But for those here who have not responded to this message and they're living lives of hopelessness, lives in darkness, they need the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing grace that can save them and make them new. And I pray that they will respond in repentance and faith. I pray that you will regenerate them and reconcile them and make them your own. I pray, Father, we'll see lives changed and lives transformed. I pray, Father, that you will help us to live lives that are holy and blameless, irreproachable, because you have taken the reproach from our sin on yourself. In your name I pray. Amen.